The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. Well, good morning. As Walt said earlier, we are thrilled that you chose to be here to worship with us this morning. Go ahead and open your Bible up to Mark chapter 4. We've been walking through the book of Mark. If you're new here with us, we started in Mark chapter 1, verse 1 on September 9th. We're making our way through the book of Mark. We're just today hitting chapter 4. And so we're not rushing. We're not in a hurry. We're trying to take it in bite-sized chunks, chew on it, talk through it in our community groups, and really wrap our minds around what Mark is communicating under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not just to the Christians in Rome that he's writing this to some 25, 30 years after Jesus left the earth, but also so that we can figure out what does God's supernaturally inspired, inerrant, infallible, and preserved word have to say to me 2,000 years later. Because if we're not learning from it, if it's not transforming us, then we're missing the point. And so we're taking our time through Mark. But we've seen Jesus in these four periods in his life. Uh, He started out in the preparation period where he was baptized and went with the Holy Spirit and went through the temptation. And now we're about a year into his ministry in the Galilean area. So for some year now, we've seen that Jesus is walking around preaching this gospel of grace. We went through a five-part sermon series, and if you've not listened to it yet, I encourage you to go to the podcast and find it. But we went through a five-part sermon series where Jesus kind of goes head-to-head with the Pharisees because they were all about the law. Let's follow the law. In fact, let's not just follow the law that God gave us, but let's create a bunch of laws that help us to keep those laws so now we can keep all 613 of them. And as as God sees us keeping these laws, then God's going to be like, man, that that guy's pretty cool. I'm going to go ahead and, and restore this relationship. And so the Pharisees were all about these rules, these laws, this empty religion. And Jesus is walking around saying, you guys are missing the point. The point of the law is to show you that you can't work your own righteousness out, that you can't please God with your own actions. You can't do it. But the good news is, I can. I will. And so Jesus is saying, follow me. Don't follow religion for the sake of religion. Don't try to be religious to try to get favor with God. Because that's not going to happen. And we see that the Pharisees, these religious elite, they finally have enough of this. They finally have enough of this nonsense of Jesus preaching grace and it's kind of contradicting their own view of the law. The law wasn't bad. The law was never bad. But they had misunderstood the law. And so they finally have enough of it. And so they start to plot the destruction of Jesus. Things are on a collision course. It's going to ultimately wind up on a Roman cross. But but before that happens, Jesus still has a couple of years for him to continue speaking about this kingdom of God, this, this thing that God was building and drawing and calling people out to himself in spite of them. And so as we've been following Jesus, we've found that many of Jesus' messages seem to be doctrinal and then other messages seem to be applicational. And, and what I mean by that is that some of the things we've covered seems to be Jesus trying to change the way that we think. All right? He wants to change the way that we look at things. He wants to impart knowledge so that we can know a little bit more about how God works. And then other times, it's just direct application. Do this, and do this, and do this, and and do this. Again, not to earn that righteousness before God, but so that we could become the people of God that God has called us to be. Now, I've been trying. I've been trying hard the last few weeks. I really want to become a pastor You know, with Walt. I want to be a pastor that fills the pain and suffering of my people. I, I want to understand the, the misery that you go through sometimes and, and the suffering and the, and the pain and the agony. And, and so to do this, I started listening to my own sermons after I've preached them. 
And let's just be honest, there's a whole lot of knowing there and not a whole lot of do. And sometimes it's because we don't dig deeply enough in the application, but I'm convinced, I truly am convinced, that you can't separate orthopraxy from orthodoxy. And those are a couple of church words that basically mean proper living and proper knowledge or, or right actions, right knowledge. But you can't separate the two because what we believe drives the way that we act, right? Our theology drives our methodology. What we think and know and value changes the way that we live and do, and it changes everything. And so we can't separate the two. But sometimes the message is you've got to dig a little deep, sometimes you don't. But I want you to pay close attention today because this is going to be one of those messages that are clearly both parts knowledge as well as application. So stay with me. Stay with me because today we're going to talk about something that was definitely on the minds of Jesus' disciples. Something that was definitely on the minds of the Christians in Rome who are being persecuted for their faith. Some 30 years after Jesus has gone back into heaven, they've got questions roll around in their mind about this kingdom of God. Questions that we even now still have about this kingdom of God. And so hopefully we're going to learn something that doesn't just change the way that we think. All right, I don't want us to leave here saying, okay, well, I learned a lot. I, I heard a lot. We became hearers of the word, but not doers. And so today, hopefully, it's going to change a lot of things. Because here's the problem. Jesus has been on the ground for about a year now. And he's spent this year explaining to the people that are following him, you can't work yourself into the kingdom of God. You can't do it. And so if Jesus says that you can't work yourself into this kingdom, and yet Jesus is on earth to expand his kingdom, then the question becomes, well, how does one then get into the kingdom? Because Jesus is going to go into these, uh, the next three messages after today. They're going to talk about this kingdom of God. And so the question is, if we can't work our way into it, if there's not something that we can do that's going to allow us to become part of it, then how in the world does the kingdom grow? And what is, what is my role in that? And so Mark shifts gears in chapter 4. And we're going to start looking at this dynamic between grace and works, between trying to work ourselves into the kingdom perhaps working physically to build the kingdom. And we're going to find out one very pressing thing. All right, Grace works. Works doesn't. Works doesn't. And here's why it matters. It matters because we all know somebody who's not in this kingdom of God that we're talking about. We all have friends and relatives and loved ones and co-workers who are on the outside of this kingdom of God. And so now we've got to wrestle with, well, well, what can we do to get them in? All right, we know people who are perhaps curious. You know, they've heard about this thing that we call Christianity. They've heard about Jesus. And perhaps they want to know a little bit more. And so they're being, they're being drawn and they're curious and they're looking. And then we know some people that, that really just aren't interested. All right, how many of us know somebody that just really has no interest in our faith whatsoever? All right, so you've got the disinterested people, and now we're trying to wrestle with, well, well what can we do for them? And, and then you've got those who are just openly hostile against Christianity that have their minds and their hearts set against it, and the last thing they would want is anything to do with this man named Jesus. And so we're wrestling in the back of our minds, well, if they can't work themselves into the kingdom, and I can't work them into the kingdom, then, then how in the world do we have any hope that they're going to come into this thing that we call the kingdom of God, this family of God, this universal church, this body of believers? That's a very, very valid question. And so while we can answer that question by simply saying that, that faith and repentance are the doorway into the kingdom, 
I think a more pressing question that haunts many of us in that secret place of our heart is wondering, am I doing enough to get this guy into the kingdom? Was there something that I could have done that would have led to my mom or my dad, my wife, my husband, my son, my daughter? Is there anything that I could have done when I had the chance that would have possibly changed anything? And that's a lot of responsibility, right? That's a lot of weight to lay there and wonder, am I going to be responsible for the damnation of another person's soul because I didn't do enough? Because how many of us can sit here and honestly say, yeah, I've done enough. I can't. Yeah. But it's a a huge weight. The famous 19th century evangelist D.L. Moody, don't know if you're familiar with him or not, big wig in his day, he had these famous revivals, and, and he held a revival meeting on the night that the great Chicago fire broke out. And so he went through the message, and he was preaching, and he was really imploring people to, to trust in Christ. And back in the day, they liked to do these things called make a decision for Jesus. But instead of having an altar call or having that time where people could just come to the front and you know do business with God, however it was they did it in those circles, he decided not to that night because the fire engines were racing through Chicago and everyone, of course, was wondering what the big fuss was. And as it got louder and more chaotic, D.L. Moody said, well, let's just all go home, all right, think about these things, and then tomorrow night when we come back, then I'll give you a chance to make a decision for Jesus. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time correcting his theology, but if you trust in Christ, you can do it wherever, whenever. You don't have to come back the next night. But here's the problem. D.L. Moody didn't realize that in the course of this fire, over 100 people were going to die. He didn't realize that out of the 300,000 homes in Chicago at the time, that 100,000 of them were going to be no longer inhabitable. I mean, this thing devastated Chicago. He didn't realize that he wasn't going to have a meeting the following night. And so in the back of his mind, for the rest of his life, he was determined to never preach without having an altar call because he was wondering, well, if I had just had an altar call, who may have been saved? All right, so that crippled him. That responsibility, that wondering whether or not he truly had any bearing in the salvation of another person. Now, the other end of the spectrum looks like this. The other end of the spectrum follows this line of reasoning. Well, God is sovereign, which means that God is in charge because he's God, and that's kind of one of the rights to be in God. And so if God is sovereign and God is capable of getting his will, and he is because he's God, then logically, if God is sovereign, God is capable of getting His will, then God's going to save whoever He wants to save, with or without my help. And so therefore, personal evangelism is pointless. Making a fool of ourselves preaching the gospel is pointless. Sending people to Guatemala on a missions trip must therefore be pointless. All right, that's the other end of the spectrum. So we have to figure out, out of these two very diametrically opposed mentalities, which one is true? Is it true that if we don't do enough, then we're going to stand over here and be responsible for our loved ones not being saved? Or is it true that we can stand over here and say, well, I don't have to do a cotton-picking thing because God is God and He doesn't need my help? Is the truth somewhere there in the middle? And so with that in mind, let's see what Jesus has to say about this in Mark 4. Now, if you remember, Jesus has just finished shockingly claiming that that these people around me, the ones who do the will of the Father, those who follow me, they are my mothers and brothers and sisters. All right, so he is still revolutionarily changing the way that people think about this kingdom of God, this family of God. 
And so he leaves the house, and again he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered around him, so that he got into a boat and sat it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. As he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So put yourself there in this situation. You're in a huge crowd. Jesus is sitting on a boat of all things so that his voice will carry across the water so that he can talk to all of these people who are gathered around. And then Jesus begins to talk about farming. Farming. He's not talking about the kingdom of God anymore. He's not talking about the gospel. He's not talking about his family. He's not talking. He starts talking about farming. All right, just spinning this little story about a guy who tosses seed onto the ground, and some of it does well, and some of it doesn't. And ta-da! Welcome to farming, right? But see, all of that changed when Jesus said, "He who has an ear to hear, let him hear." And it was about then that some of the people in the crowd realized, "Wait a minute, Jesus isn't just talking about farming." Because when Jesus says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear, what Jesus is saying is this. Those of you who can get this, listen up. Those of you who can receive this truth, receive it. Pay attention. Listen to what I'm saying. And this gets some gears turning. Because there's a lot of people in this crowd completely miss the point of the story. And we can expect that from the Pharisees. We can expect that from the scribes, these religious people who aren't really following Jesus. But we're going to find in a little bit that even some of Jesus' own followers really had no idea what he was talking about. I mean, they understand the story, but that's about it. And so Mark tells us that when the crowds had left and when he was alone, those around him with the twelve, so it wasn't just his twelve chosen disciples, it was all of those following him, they asked him about the parables. Uh... Jesus, hi, hi. Beautiful weather, huh? <sighs> All right, so Jesus, I know you said that he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And, and we heard you talking about some, some seeds on the ground and there are some rocks and thorns. And, but I, I got to be honest with you, Jesus. We don't really get it. All right, I know you told us to listen, but can you unconfuse us, please? Help me out here, Jesus. I want to know what it is you're saying but we're clueless. And then Jesus drops a bombshell, one that's going to hit us with the fragments because we're about to find out that whenever God's Word goes out, whenever it's preached, spoken, shared with a friend, a co-worker, a relative, whenever anything about God is spoken, it accomplishes one of two things. It, it either leads to softening and enlightenment or it leads to hardening and just a total spiritual confusion on what Jesus is saying. So He says to them in verse 11, he said, to you has been given to know the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. And then he says why this is. 
All right, he says, for you it's been given to know the secrets, but for everybody else, they're hearing these parables, and this is why. And then he quotes from Isaiah. He says that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now we could stay here for quite some time and dig into this and figure out why Jesus is saying this. We can go back to Isaiah chapter 6 when God tells Isaiah that the message that you're going to give is by and large going to be rejected. And then Jesus quotes this. We could talk about that, but let me just wade through the philosophical and theological arguments and simply say that what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, you who follow me, you who are in this kingdom of God, it's been given to you who have a little bit of knowledge to really get a grasp of what I'm saying. But to everybody that's outside of the kingdom, to those who are following for the show, for those who want to benefit from the miracles but not from me as their Lord and Savior, well, all they're going to hear is a riddle and some story about farming and seeds and thorns, and they're going to completely miss the point because my words are no longer for them anymore. And that, that kind of rubs us the wrong way a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, that's tough. Jesus had just spent some time saying that if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, that's a sin for which there is no rescue. You do this sin, and there is no hope whatsoever. And so we're kind of recovering from that. And then Jesus says, well, I speak in parables so that these people can get it and be transformed and so that these people are clueless and they remain ignorant and lost and separated from me. And that's rough because that's not the concept that a lot of us have of God. And I think it's because we think too little of God and perhaps too highly of ourselves. Because we like to think that God is engaged in this game of tug of war with us that he loses repeatedly. I mean, right? We like to think that God is trying his best with everybody, all right? that God is trying equally to just draw people to himself, but, but unfortunately he's not powerful enough to do it, and, and so these people have managed to best God and to foil God's plans. I, I mean, really? Is, is that God? Or is God sovereign and fully capable of getting his will? We like to think that God's greatest gift to mankind was, was this ability to choose, this idea of free will. And, and while it's true that God has given us the ability to choose to do the things that we want to do, the reality is that apart from grace and God's work in the first place, no one will be saved anyways. And so it's all God's doing, okay? And so don't think that Jesus is engaged in a game of, of intellectual tug of war and simply gives up because he's incapable of convincing people. This is an act of judgment on Jesus' part. And this is why. This is what we have to remember. All right, Jesus has spent the last year on the ground, basically homeless with the exception of when he goes to stay with Peter, just traveling for a year, working miracles, feeding people, healing people, restoring sight, healing the paralyzed people, healing leprosy, casting out demons, and saying that, this is the kingdom of God. Everything that the Old Testament has pointed to is here. It's me. And so follow me to receive life. Follow me for this restoration between you and God. So he spent a year talking plainly to these people. And what was the response that he got? Well, just the other week, they were saying, ah, he's empowered by Satan, and that's how he's able to do this. 
Okay, so it's not like Jesus is turning the lights off on people who would, if they just had enough light, would come to Jesus. These people have had a year. They know his message. They've seen his miracle. They've recognized his power and his authority, and they have willfully and deliberately said, no, we don't want that. And so Jesus says, okay, fine. Now I'm shifting gears. And so speaking in parables was a a sign of grace. It was a blessing to his followers, but it was an act of judgment against those who were against him. And while that sounds harsh, we also need to realize that as we're all accountable for the knowledge that we're given, Jesus shifting into parable mode is actually decreasing the punishment on the part of these people who would never respond positively anyways, and therefore he's kind of keeping them in the dark so that they're not even accountable now for the knowledge that he is, that he is imparting. And so even this act of judgment in itself is an act of grace that nobody ever deserves. But here's the thing. As I said before, we find that not even all of Jesus' followers really grasped the point of these parables. That's why they asked him. They said, Jesus, you said, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. We were listening, but we don't know what it is that you were communicating. And so Jesus responded with this, verse 13. He said to them, do you not understand this parable? This one. How then will you understand all the parables? I mean, come on, guys. This is basic parables 101. If you don't know how to think through this one and to put this filter in place that's going to allow you to know what I'm talking about on this one, then how are you going to understand the rest of them? But then Jesus graciously begins to explain. He interprets his parables so that they can see how to think the way that Jesus was thinking, so that they can learn, oh, okay, so this is how we're going to understand everything else. And so Jesus explains it. In verse 14, he says, The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And the others are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And so now we're beginning to see how this kingdom of God grows we're beginning to see how this kingdom is built. So let's break it down. The sower sows the word, right? So what is the word? The word is the good news of Jesus Christ. Do you remember when Jesus said the law and the prophets, they all point to me? All right. Though the gospel message really contains the work and person of Christ, the entirety of God's word is all gospel. It's all good news. And so the seed that the sower is sowing is just simply the word of God. It's the recognition that, hey, we're separated from God. Go back to Genesis chapter 3, see how all that happens. And rather than sending us all into eternal punishment like we deserve, God sent His Son to absorb the wrath of God's people so that now God can reconcile Himself to man and still be just. All right, And that's good news, right? That God can look at sinful people and say, no, you're trusting my Son as your Savior. Guess what? I see you no different than I see Him. All right, we talked about this adoption thing, this idea of being brought into God's family last week. We're not born children of God. 
we have the right to become children of God through faith in Christ. And when we are, God no longer even sees us as the rebels that we still try to be in our flesh. All right, and so that's good news. The sower simply says, Jesus has come so that now whoever believes has eternal life. And so what does Jesus say about the sower? What are the details? Because now we have to figure out how Jesus describes those who sow the seed. And here's the thing. He doesn't. He just describes them as the ones sowing the word, getting the message out. And so the good news for us is this. We're not limited in our gender, in our race, in our intellect, in our knowledge, in our social status, in the friends that we run with, where we live, what kind of car we drive, what kind of clothes we wear, how many kids we have, where we like to eat, what we like to... We're not limited by any of those things. Anybody sows the word. And so we no longer have the excuse of this is why I don't talk to my friends about Jesus because I'm not really that equipped. Yeah, the sower is not someone who's described as being equipped. They just simply sow the word, right? It takes all the pressure off of us to try to meet a certain level of requirement other than simply being one who sows the word. And when we do, when we sow this word, when we talk to our friends, whether it's in the context of me standing here in front of you and preaching or Walt or in the context of community group where we're chewing on God's Word, if it's in the context of a five-minute conversation you have at work, as we begin to sow this seed, as we begin to share the gospel, to talk about God, to share God's Word, we can expect, expect to see various results. For some people, it's going to be like banging our head against a brick wall, all right? because that seed's falling on the wayside. It doesn't even have a chance to really get in. And then just as quickly, it's gone. How many of us have talked to people like this? You might have just the briefest window of opportunity to share your faith, and just as quickly, they're talking about the football game. I mean, nothing whatsoever. No receptivity. Receptivity, whatever that word is. Others are going to hear it, and they're going to rejoice because what they've heard has been distorted. And all they hear is that, okay, if I add Jesus to my life, well, this is good because Jesus is all for me. And I'm for me, so if I'm for me and Jesus is for me, then i got it made now. I've got my health. He's going to give me my wealth, prosperity. Yeah, I'll take Jesus if it means I get everything else with him. All right. So they're happy to hear that Jesus loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life because they love themselves and also have a wonderful plan. Surely Jesus can be a cherry on top, right? And so they hear this gospel, and what they hear is, if you follow Christ, then it's going to be nothing but benefit for you. And they're like, okay, yeah, I'll take that. But then when it comes time to pick up their cross and die daily, when it comes time to be mocked by their friends and their family for following Christ, when it comes time to to have just the slightest bit of trial for calling themselves a Christian, what do they do? Ah, yeah. Yeah, I just, I I, I tried it. I did that when I was younger. And it's just not for me. There's no root to it. Looks good at first, but it doesn't last because there was no true growth there. Others here respond favorably. Me? Not go to hell? Sure. Sign me up. But then the, the minute that they start thinking, okay, well, if I follow Christ, man, what if it makes me put money in the basket at church? How am I... How am I going to give money over here and then save up for a boat over here? Or how am I going to call myself a Christian and then 
perhaps not get the raise at work because I'm one of those Jesus freaks or or uh, how am I going to how am I going to be a Christian at school and then have the other students around me make fun of me because now I'm no longer like them or I don't party the way they do and so the minute they start to realize that all of this other stuff is out there and they're like well I can follow Christ or I can party and that party seems a little bit more appealing than Christ or I can follow Christ or I can pursue wealth these things that are outside of the kingdom of God are so alluring that even though at first they respond favorably, ultimately they walk away from it because they want some other stuff. And it would be a miserable state of affairs if the parable ended right there. I mean, it would, right? Go out and share the gospel. These people won't care. These people are going to look good, but it's not going to last because they don't really want Jesus. They want what Jesus can do for them. And if it ended right there, I probably would have no motivation whatsoever to share my faith. But it doesn't end there. There's another kind of response that we can expect to see, and that is this. Some are going to hear it. Some are going to respond to the Word, and that's going to take hold of their life, and it's going to produce fruit. Typical average crop return 2,000 years ago was somewhere between 7 and 12 times the amount of seed planted. And so a 30-fold harvest is pretty good, but it's not unheard of. It's just really good. And 60 times, that's great. And then 100 times, it's been seen to happen, but it is so rare. And and Jesus' point is simply this. True followers of Christ, they might produce fruit in varying degrees. You might see a whole lot from this person, not a whole lot over here, but everybody who truly follows Christ produces fruit. After all, we all have the same Holy Spirit, right? And so we can expect to see that this is going to take hold. And so... With all of that in mind, that was my introduction. Uh, Just kidding. With all of that in mind, we got to ask ourselves a few questions because we got to wrestle with some stuff. We got to we got to build some some sort of strategy for dealing with tension that is here in the text that I'm going to break out for us. I'm reminded of when I used to go to the gym, and I know I look like I live in the gym. I don't. It's all natural. there's a machine in the gym, and this is how gym illiterate I am, okay? I don't even know what they're called, but I know that you grab the handle over here, and you grab the handle over here, and, you know, you do flies or, or whatever it is. When I was younger, I used to put about 120 pounds on this one and, and grab this thing, and then come over here, and then grab the other one, and then I would jump up in the air, and the weight would carry me. I probably looked like a fool, but it was fun. You know, you got so much tension on you that when you jump, it carries you to the next one. I was like Spider-Man. All right, it's fun in games when you're 12, but when you're 22, they look at you funny. But here's the thing. You can stand in the middle and hold tension on both sides and just stand there and deal with it, or you can jump back and forth. But do you think that you can jump from this position and stop right in the middle, or is the tension going to carry you to the other side? I mean, it's going to carry you over. And so the challenge is trying to figure out how do I maintain perfect tension by grabbing what's over here and what's over here. Because it's a whole lot easier to just plant your hand right here and not even deal with the tension, right? Because nobody likes tension. We like to have answers for everything. We like to have a a working knowledge of everything that God has ever done so that we no longer have to lie awake in bed and wonder, how does that work? But the tension is there, and we're going to look at it. We've got a couple of truths that we need to grasp. Okay, we've got to grasp these truths regardless of the tension that it might hold for us. The first truth is this. God is completely sovereign. 
over everything, whether it's the rotation of the earth, how far the sea comes in when the tide is in, who is saved, who is not. God is sovereign over all of that. And because of that, God saves whomever He wills. All right, you're not going to see God lose a tug-of-war match with anybody. He's the creator, we are the creation. He's the potter, we're the clay. All right, it's not like we can rise up and overpower God and defeat every plan that He ever had. And I know that we like to think, yeah, but, but God and His sovereignty has given us the ability to, to choose now. And, yeah, okay, there's some truth to that, but still, repentance, the seeing your sin for the way it is, that's a grace from God because prior to that, we don't have a problem with our sin. Yes, God says, whoever believes in me will be saved, but according to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that faith itself is a gift from God. It is grace. The entire part and parcel of conversion and salvation, it's grace. It's God acting towards us in a way that we don't deserve. And God does that so that none of us can boast. Well, I chose Him. Yeah. Why'd you do that? Because I believed. Yeah. Where'd it come from? Were you born with that faith? No. Did you conjure it up yourself? No. So who gave it? Well, God gave it to you. That's grace. So God saves whomever He wills. He doesn't need our help in that arena. And we can grab onto that truth. We can say, okay, yeah, I believe that God is sovereign because surely He didn't need my help converting the Apostle Paul back when he was Saul and all he wanted to do was persecute the church. Okay, does somebody need to give God a helping hand there? Did God lose this match with, with Saul? No. God is sovereign, clearly in control. And we can grab onto that truth and allow that to make us lazy and apathetic and sit back and say, well, if that's the case, then I'm not going to do anything and I'm not going to talk to anybody and I'm not going to risk my popularity at school and I'm not going to risk getting passed up for a job in the workplace and I'm not going to risk being alienated from my friends and family because if God is sovereign, then He's going to save them whether I go out on a limb or not. All right, we can grab that truth and follow it to those faulty conclusions, or we can look at the other truth, and and that is this. In His sovereignty, God has chosen to use human means to build His kingdom. You follow me here? Yes, God is sovereign, but God has also chosen to use us in the building of His kingdom. It's why the last thing that Jesus said before He went on back to heaven was, hey, go into the entire world and make disciples. All right, Jesus didn't say, I got this one covered. You go chillax a little bit, and I'm going to do all the world evangelism for you. Now, Jesus said, I'm giving you the authority that I have, so go preach the gospel to everybody. Make disciples of all nations. Baptize them. Teach them everything that I've taught you. All right, that's the other truth that we have to grasp. Yes, God is sovereign, but God has called us to be the messengers of the gospel. And so now we can't sit back and say, well, if God is sovereign, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to say. I'm not going to be. Because if we do that, then we're clearly in violation of Jesus' command to go and make disciples. So we have to grab both sides of that. Yes, God is sovereign. And yes, I'm going to share the gospel because I've been called to. Here's two more truths to balance and we're wrapping things up. The first is this. We do not have the ability to convince anybody. They're spiritually dead, remember? We cannot convince somebody to become born again. We cannot intellectually work through everyone's problems with Christianity and and wrap up an argument so tight that at the end of it, they're like, okay, well, you're right, I believe. 
It takes an act of grace for anyone to see the truth. And so we, in and of our own strength, in our own flesh, in our own supposed eloquence of speech, we can't talk people into the kingdom. Paul said, when I came to you, I didn't come with words of wisdom. I didn't come with eloquence. I came speaking like a fool, wanting you to know one thing and one thing only, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. All right, so truth number one is we can't convince people, but the other side of that, the other side of this tension that we're holding is the fact that the gospel works. Grace works. The power of God and the salvation is the gospel. It's the content. It's, it's not how we say it. All right, it's not whether or not we present it with our shirts tucked in or with the faux hawk like I almost wore this morning. It's that we're sharing the gospel. All right, the gospel, the good news is the power of God into salvation. When you sow that seed, it's going to work. Not with everybody because you've got the wayside and the stones and the thorns to deal with, but the good soil, when you put that word out there, supernatural things happen. But is it going to happen if we don't sow it? No, it's not. So how do we know the gospel works. I mean, Jesus told us, he told us 2,000 years ago, he said, if you're one of mine, then your job is to go out here and tell the entire world the good news. Because if you, as you do, people are going to be saved. And so why is it that 2,000 years later, we still have almost 3 billion people who have never heard the name of Jesus? We've got over 7,000 people groups Entities within themselves that have no work and knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have no news of hope. They have no news of God's forgiveness. They have no hope of salvation because there is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. So these people have got to hear the gospel. It's why Jesus sent his church out. And so why some 2,000 years later have we not done that? But the good news is eventually... Eventually, it gets done. All right, John receives a vision from Jesus some 60 years after Jesus went back into heaven. And as John is writing on the Isle of Patmos, this letter, this revelation of Jesus Christ to the churches, this is what John sees in this vision that Jesus gives him of a future date that we've not yet reached. All right, To John and to us, this is in the future. But this is what John sees. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. John says, After this I looked... And behold, you're going to hear this a lot at Life Journey because if this doesn't motivate you for world missions, then nothing will. Behold, I looked a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All right, so at some point, at some point, people are going to sow the seed to these people who have yet to even hear the gospel, and it's going to work. People are going to be saved. My question for us this morning is, do we want any hand in this? Or do we want to sit back over here and say, no, God's in control, and He doesn't need me? I don't think we have that option. I don't think we have that option. We know that the gospel works. 
We know that grace works. We know that we can't build the kingdom in our own strength, but we also know that we can do all things through Christ, which strengthens us. There's that tension. We can't do anything, but we've been called to do a lot. And so we need to ask ourselves, what are we doing? As our band comes forward, we need to talk about just a couple more issues as we try to wrap our mind around the fact that God's in control, but God calls us to, to share the message, and some people aren't going to care, and some people will, and, and ultimately the gospel gets out and it works. And so we have to ask ourselves, what role do we have in all of this? Are we sowing the Word? Are we sharing our faith? I'm not saying get up on a soapbox down there in downtown Charlottesville with a mega, megaphone and if God calls you to that, that's fine. But I'm not saying that that's what God wants everybody to do. I'm, I'm simply asking, are you taking conversations as they're open to you? Are you engaging the people in your workplace and just when the opportunity presents itself, simply saying, well, yes, I, I am a follower of Christ. Well, what does that mean? And then conversing. We can't convince, we can't convict, but we can converse, right? Are we doing that? Or are we hiding behind God's sovereignty? Are we crippled in our anxiety, our fear of being made fun of, our fear of no longer being the cool kid at school, or the guy that's next up for promotion, or the lady that's up for promotion? Are, are we crippled? Are we hiding? Are we seeing the sovereignty of God as something that we can kind of hide behind and, and turn our back on three billion people who have no idea who Jesus is? Is, is, that, is that what we're going to do? What are we doing to sow the Word of God outside of Crozet? For some of us, it's time to, to really pray about, does God want me going to Guatemala? I know there's a lot of you that want to go to Guatemala, and 1200 bucks seems unreasonable. So maybe for you, the prayer request is, do I invest into someone else that wants to go? Because in missions, you're doing one of two things. You're going down the well, or you're holding the rope for the one that's down there. And so if you can't go, you can give, right? I mean, there are so many options that we have, so many options for getting the Word of God outside of Crozet, whether it's in person, whether it's inviting your neighbor to community group, going on short-term mission trips, being a missionary at a college campus somewhere. All right, this kingdom of God is growing, and it encompasses the entire world, what role, what role do we want in it? So as we pray this morning, I don't know how the Holy Spirit's prompting you, but I do know this. This is our journey marker for the week. The kingdom of God is built through grace. All right? It is all of grace. No one's going to earn it. No one can physically drag somebody into it. God's got to be at work. And so the kingdom of God is built through grace, but we've been called to work. Right? And so are we going to work? We're going to give ourselves a couple of minutes to just respond to the work of the Holy Spirit to try to figure out, okay, God, yes, you've called me to work. How do you want this to happen? So we're going to give you a few minutes to pray, and then we're going to sing our final worship song. If you want somebody to pray with you, Walt's going to be up here. I'll be up here. You're welcome to come up and see us. Let us know how we can pray with you. But I just encourage you in the next few minutes to ask God, to reveal to you how He wants you to further His kingdom. I would even encourage you, why don't you pray even now and ask God to give you the opportunity this week to share the good news with somebody. Family member, friend, co-worker. 
There's three billion people out there that haven't even heard his name yet. So, Father, as we wrap up this morning, Lord, we thank you that you are sovereign. Lord, we rejoice. We rejoice in knowing that you have chosen for yourself a people that encompasses every single people group. That at some point, somehow, through some means, the gospel will get out. But, Father, we're not content to sit until it happens. Because until it does, there are still people who are perishing who haven't even heard the name of Your Son. So Father, motivate us this morning. Lord, don't let us, don't let us be driven by fear. Lord, don't let us get involved with, with local and global missions, this kingdom growing, sowing the seed. Don't let us do it just to, to make You happy, because Lord, You are happy. Don't let us do this because we think that Your will is incapable of being accomplished unless we do it because we know that You don't need us. But Lord, You have chosen to use us. You've given us the joy of being the instruments of Your Gospel, of being the beautiful feet that carry the good news to the nations. So Father, I don't know what that looks like for us. I know as a church it looks like disciple building, multiplying community groups, planting churches, doing global missions in Guatemala this year and who knows in the years to come. But Father, even as individuals, Monday through Saturday, You have placed every one of us in this mission field of Crozet, Charlottesville, Waynesboro, the surrounding counties, Lord. So I pray that You would use us. Give us the courage that we need to take a stand for our faith. Help us to realize, Father, that we can't convince, and so we should converse with love and with grace. Lord, help us to be a light that cannot be hid. We just ask all this in the name of your Son. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.